great gowns, beautiful gowns. Hi, I'm Lauren Garoni. And I'm Chelsea Fairless. And I almost triggered Chelsea to have a nervous breakdown a second ago. I had to move my reed diffuser to another part <laughs> of the room. Does anyone else feel a deep sense of discomfort when you're around one of those? Like the sticks in the oil? So it's the sticks... It actually, like, it gives me, like, the shivers whenever I look at one of them. And I've felt this way since I was a child. I got an air purifier, which is a real game changer, and I had put the reed diffuser on top of it to diffuse that lovely, lovely tobacco patchouli scent from Patty Wax, which everyone seems to love universally. You keep looking back at the air purifier like they're there, Chelsea. They're not. It's okay. <laughs> look to your left. They're across the room. <sighs> I really hate it. And Chelsea was just staring at it. And I said, what? And she said, what do you mean, what? And I thought you were confused about why it was on top of an air purifier. No, it's just, you know, I don't like them. I forgot (laughs) because it's so, I'm not going to say ridiculous, but out of the norm of phobias, it's what? That that a phallic object, many phallic objects are erect out of this. It's not that it's phallic. Like I have a Richardson incense burner that looks like a dick. It's not (laughs) about that. It's just like, I don't know. There's something about the sticks in the oil that just grosses me out. Is it sort of like put the lotion in the basket? Is like put the oil on the on the sticks? I don't know. So it's the just, room smells nice? It's freaky. It reminds me of old women. I just I can't vibe with it anyway. All right, down with reed diffusers. <laughs> That's why you're a candle girl. Yeah, exactly. Candles and incense only. Are we just doing everything we can to delay talking about the end of, of Kim and Pete? Let's get into it. I can't believe how rude. They were with the timing of their breakup announcement right after we released last week's episode. It's almost as if Kim and Pete were the sacrificial lamb so no one would focus on Chloe's surrogate baby. Yeah. But also we do get fucked by releasing episodes on Fridays because that is when people announce their divorces and stuff. I mean, if you would like to move the (laughs) if you would like to move the recording schedule. But I feel like we did this game already. Yeah, I wonder what happened. It didn't seem like it was made to last forever anyway, so I'm not exactly surprised. I think that these theories that she's going back to Kanye are insane. Yeah, I also, I know that people were like, you should do an emergency pod, but there's not much there. And I don't know if it's just me, but I feel like people don't really care that much that they broke up. And I don't know if that's because, one, we didn't think it was going to last. To be fair, I thought we would get a year anniversary. I thought their relationship would at least last through when we get to see the beginning of their relationship on the Kardashians, <laughs> which comes back in September. Also, remember those paparazzi photos of them? They both had bleached hair. Like, has their, like, skin campaign or their skim skims campaign not even come out yet i think that's wishful thinking on our part i imagine that probably more likely pete showed up when she was shooting something and uh what's the hair guy guy's name oh chris Chris appleton Appleton. was like you want me to bleach your hair while kim's taking photos and he was like sure yeah but i don't know if i'm the only one that doesn't care too too much if it's because we thought it wasn't gonna last or the fact that we haven't seen them together in a month or two. So it's not like we got a cavalcade of photographs and then breakup announcement. Right. In tabloid world, it kind of feels like they've broken up because there hasn't been anything about them. Well, who are they dating next is the question. (laughs) Yes, I've seen those memes of Pete and Queen Elizabeth and someone said Olivia Wilde, which is... Isn't she still dating Harry Styles, though? She is, but just, you know, teeing it up. That movie comes out soon, so I'm sure that relationship will coincide with the end of the press tour. I feel the only way that he could top dating Kim would be to date, like, Angelina Jolie or something. Also, Tat made the point that Emrata is single, and that I can see. That I can see. However, he's friends with all of those guys. He's good friends with Josh Safdie. So I don't know if he would go for... Right. I'm I'm sure he's friends with 
Sebastian Bear. Well, didn't they get divorced anyway? Or they- I think they're still not officially divorced. I think it's one of those like people sources say they've broken up, but there hasn't been anything. Oh, right. Julia Fox and Pete Davidson. Mm, I feel like she would like eat him alive or something. That would be like a Adam Jessa relationship from girls when she's like, we will destroy each other. <laughs> totally. Speaking of girls, I started watching that bear show that you were talking about. Thoughts? I mean, Desi is amazing. I don't know what that actor's name is. Ebon Moss Backrack. More important. That's his name? Yes. Is he related to Burr Backrack? No, but every time we speak about him, I bring up the fact that only you and I would care about that he's married to Yelena Yemchuk. Oh, right. Oh, amazing. Yeah, so if you go to her Instagram, you'll get very artsy (laughs) photos of him. The director of my favorite Smashing Pumpkins music video. Well, it's so hard to pick a favorite, actually. Okay, do you like the bear? It's a very me show. It's a very like masculine, everyone's yelling at each other, frenetic. Yeah, but it's like a window into a really stressful job that I'm glad I don't have, but I'm kind of stressed out like having to witness it. I And I wonder if this is the uncut gems effect where it's like oh we're now just gonna make media that makes you feel like you're having a sustained panic attack and it's like no (laughs) (laughs) yeah everyone that I know who works in the service industry is like I can't watch that show because it's too realistic yeah I believe that do we want to get into uh Kanye's obit for Pete Pete being in trauma therapy yeah god it's just like Kanye's Instagram posts about Pete Davidson just make him look so lame. You know what I mean? It's like disappointing to see him be so embarrassing. That's why it's especially funny when clearly Kanye stands are like, they're going to get back together. It's like, would you? Like, take yourself out of your fandom for Kanye West. We all think he's a genius, but this behavior is embarrassing. Just what he chose to do. Like, he photoshopped a cover of the New York Times and it said Pete David Skeet Davidson is dead or something like that which is at first I was like oh I guess that's kind of funny if they had a couple name which I don't think they really did or that anyone used that frequently and it was like right if it was like when Jennifer Lopez and Ben Affleck broke up, but Puff Daddy did a post that was like Benifer dead at, you know. Well, the New York Post literally did that when um, Brangelina broke up. If it were the couple name dead, that's at least something. But this is truly shit from like a thriller film. Yeah, but I think I was more offended that he just did a bad like New York Times cover. He didn't use that scary italicized all caps typeface that they use when they're trying to scare the shit out of us. <laughs> right. He used Champion, which is what they use at V Magazine and V Files and Beyonce used for that album, like the surfboard album or whatever. Well, the Beyonce album. Well, he clearly woke up a graphic designer at five in the morning was like, hey, hey, I got a, I got an idea. What can you do in three minutes? Yeah, it's very much giving that vibe. Kim, of course, demanded that he take that down. It was up for a whole four hours. And later that day, a source told People Magazine that Pete Davidson is in trauma therapy because when Kanye does stuff like this, it triggers him. I'm not surprised. The timing is interesting, and I wonder, because the source quote was like, when he does, when Kanye does stuff like this, it triggers Pete enough that he sought out help. And it's like, is that in reference to the first quote? go around of that online harassment or was did this push him over the edge where he needed to seek out counseling once again I think it would be hard for most people to let that roll off of their shoulders oh god no also Kanye fans are psychotic it's like you're not even dealing with Kanye you're dealing with the super fans more importantly who's Kim dating next yeah I don't know because as she says she's a relationship girl I can't even imagine. I would like her to just date someone that's not famous. I think that would be wise. Yeah. But that's what I want for all of them. I guess Chloe broke up with her non-famous investment banker bro that we never saw. Oh, all right. But I kind of want to start having just announcing that I have boyfriends that you never meet. And then I'm like, oh, we broke up. I guess what I'm saying is I'd like to (laughs) more authentically become a pathological liar. In other, well, we have a lot of tragic celebrity news. 
<laughs> just worked out this way. A lot of people died. A lot of fucked up shit happened in the five days since we last recorded. <laughs> Firstly, Olivia Newton-John died. Very sad. She's been battling breast cancer for like 10,000 years now. And it finally got her. I have nothing to say. I didn't... You're not a huge Olivia Newton-John fan. Well, she's one of those people that you can't not be a fan of. Everyone's seen Grease. Yeah, but when I first saw Grease, I was like, it's all about Rizzo. It's not about Sandy. Like, Sandy was only cool once she got her makeover. Right. She was a bit of a wet blanket. Yeah. Also, I love how historically inaccurate that makeover is. Like, I don't think people were wearing, like, spandex disco pants in the 1950s, but whatever. She looked cool. I also don't think 1950s cars fly into the sky. <laughs> Do you remember how Grease ends? <laughs> of course. No, Grease is so major. Xanadu is major too. But the most major Olivia Newton-John thing is obviously the Beaver trilogy. Oh, that's why that Instagram account posted the Beaver trilogy again. I completely forgot about that. Yeah, for those of you who aren't familiar, it's this kind of legendary underground movie about this guy that is a crazed Olivia Newton-John fan. So it's in three parts. And the first part is... A documentary. A documentary of sorts where a cameraman who was in Denver, something like that, I think somewhere in Colorado or Idaho, something like that, was just testing out his camera and this guy approached him and just started talking. And the guy kind of looks like Patrick Swayze. And he's like, by the way, I'm a huge Olivia Newton-John fan and I actually impersonate her. I'm an Olivia Newton-John impersonator. (laughs) And the guy's like, okay. And he's like, do you want to see me in, what was it, a talent show? Yeah, it was like a local talent show. So the guy comes back, films it, that's it. I mean, it's 20 minutes, if that. But (laughs) what makes it the Beaver trilogy is that a few years later, the guy that shot the original footage decided to make a fictionalized version of what happened. And the first one stars Sean Penn. Yeah, but it's it's very low budget, but they filmed it in the same locations that the original was filmed in. They got the same people to come back to the talent show and do the same shit. And then several years after that, with a bit more money, Crispin Glover plays the original guy in a surreal fictionalized version of what took place in the original documentary. Yeah, it's longer. It expands upon the story a bit, but it's a really, really incredible film. It's hard to see because the Olivia Newton-John song, Please Don't Keep Me Waiting, is what he sings at the talent show, and they just will not license it to this director. It's the same problem that plagues Todd Haynes's superstar. But you got a copy because I feel like this is such a pillar of our friendship is you showed this to me like 12 years ago. Yeah. Well, I first saw it in a movie theater and then, yeah, you can buy it from the director's website. And I suggest that everyone do that. You could also probably watch it in like 50 parts on YouTube. You definitely can. Which is a worthwhile thing to do. And I believe there was a documentary that came out a few years ago about it. Yes. But I never saw that. I never saw it either. I need to watch that. Add it to our watch list. But yeah, it's really, it's really amazing. And gave me a love for Olivia Newton-John that maybe I didn't have before. Because I feel like Olivia Newton-John is kind of like Karen Carpenter without the sadness. I mean, there's a bit of sadness with her life. Her husband left her for the babysitter. Her battle with cancer. The boyfriend that went missing in the early 2000s, which people... Oh, I forgot about that. Oh, I'll never forget about that. Unfortunately, that is my more recent memory of her, is the boyfriend who went missing and I think was found or someone had... What do you mean he was found? Like he... Did he like fake his own death or was he like mentally ill and like ran off into the woods or something? Okay, here we go. In 2009, investigators on Dateline claimed McDermott disappeared to avoid debts, including 8000 he allegedly owed to his ex-wife for child support. That seems like a shockingly low amount to fake your own death for. But $8,000? Yeah. He also disappeared shortly after filing for bankruptcy, having unpaid debts totaling more than 30000 at the time. Again, this seems like low amounts to fake your own death, but fine. Yeah, like Olivia Newton-John is getting that for like them playing physical in some like Netflix show or something. They later believed he was living on a boat off the west coast of Mexico. So he's doing like Shawshank Redemption shit. Yes. Evidence from an Australian magazine revealed that McDermott is alive. They received photos which show a man who matches his description in Mexico along with a woman. 
That's fucked up. Yeah. So really, who's more fucked up? Her or Karen Carpenter? It's Karen Carpenter. Karen, <laughs> yeah, it's Karen, Karen Carpenter. Carpenter had like an inherent sadness that made the sweetness of her vocals so haunting. Right. Whereas I feel like Olivia Newton-John is just sweetness. I guess we should count ourselves lucky that she did not get herself involved in the uh, clutches of Scientology, given her proximity to John Travolta. <laughs> It's true. What other sad shit should we talk about now? Well, Izzy Miyake also died, unfortunately, from liver cancer. He was 84. I had no idea he was born in Hiroshima. Yeah. And was seven when the bomb hit. Yeah. And his mother died from radiation three years after the attack. So fucked up. Yet so many of his designs were imbued with so much joy. You know, it's fucked up. It's not fucked up. It's, I guess that's how you have to live. I can't imagine experiencing something like that at such a young age or ever for that matter. I mean, there's still time and the world is going in a weird place, but yes, hopefully we'll, we'll never experience that. If you don't know his work, you probably know it from the Pleats Please line. If nothing else, you will know it from the turtlenecks <laughs> that Steve Jobs would wear, that Elizabeth Holmes saw a photo of him and was like, ooh, that's what important people wear. I'm just going to steal his uniform. To be fair, that was a great uniform. Like, just wearing black Izzy Miyake turtlenecks with Levi's 501s is, like, a very cool outfit to wear for your entire life, I think. So I went down a little bit of a rabbit hole. Do you know the whole story of how Steve Jobs ended up wearing the black turtleneck? No. So Izzy Miyake in 81 had designed a uniform. Sony commissioned him to design a uniform for their factory workers for the 35th anniversary. And Steve Jobs saw that and was like, ooh, I want you to design uniforms for the Apple workers, but this is America. And his workers were like, fuck you and boot him off the stage. But instead he was like, oh, I'm not going to enforce people that work for me to wear a uniform. I'll just start wearing a uniform. And that original sweater he got was on sale. And then Izzy Miyake made him about 100. And then they retired that black turtleneck in 2017, which is the same year Elizabeth Holmes got <laughs> caught in Theranos. I'm not saying that this has anything, any correlation, but the timing is suspicious. No, it's very cool. It's also fun that Robin Williams was such a fan of Izzy Miyake. I love that. And it was really fun. Like, obviously, it's not fun that he died, but it was really fun seeing his body of work all over Instagram yesterday. And, like, I love the really kooky avant-garde stuff, but I do think that Pleats Please was his biggest contribution to fashion or to society at large or whatever because he really did make clothes that worked on people with different body types, people of different ages, you know? And I don't think that a lot of designers are thinking that way today. You know, like they may have diverse casting or sizing or whatever, but like, I don't think people are sitting around like trying to innovate in the way that Izzy Miyake did. Yeah, Which you- is why I'm, oh, I feel like I make this point often. I feel like some fucking parrot that only talks about Izzy Miyake and Norma Kamali, but I really feel that way. Yeah, he had this great quote. Design is a process built upon curiosity. Without process, design becomes creating trends susceptible to criticism. Which I feel like more designers could sort of absorb that. For sure. He was not designing up until his death. He ceded management of the design studio starting in 1999, which you posted that amazing final look from that collection. But he was, he did have final oversight over all of the products. And he first started showing on the Paris Fashion Week calendar in 1973, which would make next year his 50th year. Well, even though he's just overseeing it, it's like, please, please has been the same for 10,000 years. Right. That's why Pleats Please is like the best thing to invest in. And I get that it's expensive, but Essence actually has a lot of like deeply discounted Pleats Please shit all the time. And there's so much Pleats Please in like the vintage world too. Which I'm sure will now only go up in value, unfortunately, now that he has passed away. Yeah, no, I love Pleats Please. I took one of those caftans to Europe and it just, it never ceases to amaze me how you can just like ball it up in the tiniest little fucking ball and it just, it keeps its shape. You throw it, you wash it in a washing machine. It's fucking insane. So let's all wear pleats please in his honor. Yeah, RIP, what a legend. In other fucked up news, Anne Heche, oh God. It was just too much news Friday afternoon. It was too much. Well, there's never a good time for that news story. Like, that is among the darkest 
celebrity news stories we've gotten in ages, I think. Well, it's also coming off of, and I think this became national news, but earlier in the week, there was another fiery vehicle crash that happened when a woman, a nurse, went through an intersection 100 miles an hour and went through a car and killed five people, including a pregnant woman. And people are conflating that crash with the Anne Hayes crash. Well, she didn't kill anyone, but she very easily could have. And it's a miracle that she didn't. Yeah, in the Mar Vista area of Los Angeles, she was speeding around. She first crashed into a garage and apartment complex. Also, it felt like the materials that were coming out were coming out so fast. Like the, the image of her in her car that was immediately on TMZ. Uh, which we didn't need to see that. No, which I couldn't understand how that happened. And it was when she initially crashed... Someone took a photo of her. She drove off, and then maybe 40 minutes later, she crashed into someone's house. The house caught on fire. I couldn't find this, but on the local news here, they interviewed the people who tried to get her out of the car when when the crash initially happened, and they had to leave because of the smoke. And she was in that car for 40 minutes while it burned. So she's severely burned, and she's still in a coma as of recording and a firefighters got her out i mean there's very upsetting footage which i think has been scrubbed from the internet at this point where they put a blanket over her and then she like shoots out she shoots up and is like obviously in shock but like struggling to get it's out so fucked up it's yeah i wish i hadn't seen that that made me feel gross and she's also had a very sad life yeah well if you believe her memoir her mother debates a lot of the things she alleges in her 2001 memoir call me crazy well i did read call me crazy because mostly i just had to hear about the ellen stuff right firsthand the only thing i really remember is that they had sex like the first night that they met and it was the best sex of her life up until then when that book came out she had married her first husband and she, she was very clear i went back and you can't find the barbara walters interview she did to promote the book but on abc they still have a transcript of almost everything that happened in the interview and yeah. i love how she's like very specific to be like up until now that was the best sex i had ever had which is she's also a serial monogamous she went from steve martin to ellen degeneres to her first husband left that first husband for her second husband or partner who she co-starred with in men in trees why do i know that i know i never saw men in trees anyway give me the goss from the book there's not much goss Basically, the big revelation of the book was that she said that she was an incest survivor and that she created an alternate personality named Celestia to cope with the trauma when she was a kid. But it seems like as an adult, she sort of like slipped in and out of it. And Celestia was like an alien that had the ability to communicate with God or something. And her memoir came out... Like a year after, wait, when did her and Ellen DeGeneres break up? Was it 97 or is that when? Well, pretty much right after she broke up with Ellen was when she had the incident where she just wandered to someone's house and asked to take a shower and was having some sort of psychotic episode. Oh, yeah. But it was on ecstasy also. So she might have just been really high. Right. I did a deep dive on this because it's even crazier The day after it was reported that her and Ellen broke up is when she was found in Fresno wandering around, which she later says in her book that that's when Celestia, or she is Celestia, needed to meet God, and God told her to go to Fresno, and also I was high on ecstasy. It's dark. She's obviously mentally ill, but... Well, what she, she says, did is so fucked up, though, at the same time. Again, going back to this 2001 interview, she says that that was kind of the breaking point. She got herself out of that. As far as I know, I haven't been that into the Anne of it all, but hasn't really commented on that part of her personality or that history since that book. No. The last thing I remember hearing about Anne Hayes was when she did that next door post. Wait, what? Where she she did a post on Nextdoor where she was like, hey, it's your neighbor, Anne Heche. Just so you know, I'm going to be on Dancing with the Stars. This oh was God. maybe a few years ago or oh something. Oh, God, you're right. And I'm looking for someone to like help me train or to, 
or watch my dog. Watch my dog. Something like that. Like she needed some local reinforcements, but she was giving like an unnecessary amount of information about her being on Dancing with the Stars. It wasn't crazy like Celestia crazy, no. but it was just, it made news. It made the news because it was so bizarre. Because it seemed like what she was really doing is flexing or in this weird way. Viral marketing. <laughs> I don't even think it's that. Also, remember how Anne Heche was in I Know What You Did Last Summer? She's my favorite person <laughs> I Know What You Did Last Summer. Also, can you believe that there was a time when Anne Heche was like the romantic lead against Harrison Ford in a blockbuster, basically? I feel like this gets lost in Anne Heche's story, but she really was an ingenue in the mid to late 90s. She was... You're referring to Six Days and Seven Nights, which I saw in theaters. Same. That was an era in the late 90s when it was a lot of much, much older men with younger women. Like, I remember there was that entrapment with Sean Connery and Catherine Zeta-Jones and then Autumn in New York. That was. I knew you were going to say Autumn in New York. I know. Yeah. She was the lead in the remake of Psycho, which I'm sure will eventually be a Patreon episode where we watch Hitchcock Psycho and then Gus Van Sant's shot-for-shot remake of Psycho. Justice for the remake of Psycho. I mean, one of the most audacious blank check Hollywood moments. But is doing a shot-for-shot remake the worst idea? Like, do you think that you're going to have a better idea than Alfred Hitchcock? Like, you're not. No, no, no. But it's just, it's astounding because in Hollywood, especially at that time, if you made a studio a lot of money, you got what's called a blank check. Whatever project you want to do. He could have done anything. And he was like, no, no, no. I want to do a shot-for-shot remake of Psycho just in color. And guess who Norman Bates is? Vince Vaughn. Which is especially surreal to watch now because Vince Vaughn, for a time, after Swingers, was like, no, no, no. I'm a dramatic actor. Yeah. The crazy thing is that Anne Heche's fame level was such at the time when it was appropriate to put her in the Janet Lee role. That's what everyone forgets. She was really famous for a minute. That's why the story of her wandering around Fresno was such big news at the time. Like now it wouldn't be so much. Now I think we have a better understanding of mental health, but it was just, I mean... To be a leading Hollywood actress in big movies, then it came out that she was with Ellen DeGeneres, and then, yeah, the celestial stuff. I will say that their couple's looks were so incredible if you look back at them, Ellen and Anne, like at their peak, when they both had like the same colorist. They're both wearing like the same outfit, except for Anne's is like slightly more feminine and Ellen's is slightly more masked. It was, it's an excellent study in twinning. Yeah. But anyway, I don't. You know, this ruined Ellen's day and Porsche's too. This news or us talking about it? No, this news, like it just would. And then, all right, to round out, and I swear we'll get to happier news. This is maybe news that only you, me, and the cinephile Lukes in the audience might care about, which is Lars von Trier, known for the Dogma 95 film movement and terrorizing female actresses to the point that they never want to work again, has been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. Look, I don't want anyone to get Parkinson's, but especially not filmmakers that I really like. Oh, I thought you were going to be like, for what he did to Bjork, it's deserved. (laughs) No. Have you seen his movies? They're incredible. Yeah. I've actually never seen Breaking the Waves, though. That has not gone to the top of. Yeah, watch that. Watch that for sure. The one I haven't seen is the most recent one with Matt Dillon, where Matt Dillon plays a serial killer. Like, even the trailer for that traumatized me. I haven't watched that either because every single person's like, it's way too upsetting. And I'm like, all right. Yeah. If you're saying a Lars von Trier film is more upsetting than a usual Lars von Trier film, I'm out. Yeah, same. Because these are the same people that were like, someone cutting their clit off? Totally fine. Yeah, exactly. Great movie, by the way. Are there other movies like that for you that you're too scared to see? Oh, ever, ever? I mean, there are movies that I will never 
go back and watch again. I've never seen Irreversible. Right, because I've told you so many times I'll never watch that film again. <laughs> well, not just you. Everyone is like, it has the most disturbing rape scene in the history of cinema. But then everyone's like, but you'd probably be into it. Not, not the rape scene, but the film as a whole. Yes, it is a searing meditation on rage and, and loss, but it is an uninterrupted eight-minute scene that does not cut. Yeah, so, I don't know it, if I need to see that. Yeah, it's the unrelentingness of that. You know what really traumatized me? That movie, An Eye for an Eye with Sally Field. Have you ever seen that? Right. Where Kiefer, Kiefer Sutherland, Sutherland is, yep. is a rapist? Yep. Yes. So fucked up. That one's bad, but that's like the mid-level kind of studio thriller that I long for. That just we had so many of that we could be like, that one wasn't very good because we're going to get three more this year. And it's like we don't have any of those anymore that I'm like, I just want it. I want mm, I want a good TNT Sunday afternoon. Well, we stopped making rape and revenge films cool. that sort of feel like after school specials, which was the vibe with uh, Eye for an Eye. Anyway, Lars von Trier. <laughs> Anyway, Lars Hunter, yeah, that sucks for him. This news came out as he's finishing his Kingdom Exodus, the upcoming third and final season of his The Kingdom series. Yeah, I haven't been watching that. Where do you watch that? Because it seems like we should watch that. It's Danish television. Netflix, do you have this? <laughs> All right, on to happier things. How to build a sex room on Netflix. <laughs> I'm so excited to talk with you about this. I fucking hated this show. Really? I watched the entire season. I know you did. I, I had to jump around. Like, I watched the first two episodes. I love how this show feels like they are as interested in these couples as we are because they're like, we got to have two. And then at a certain point, three couples. Like, there was one episode where it was like, we finished one couple's room. We're working on the poly couple's room. <laughs> and now we're going to introduce this other couple. It, it is bizarre the way that it's, it's structured, but basically it's this show where this jolly British woman who really feels like an 80 Bryant SNL character is like one part sex therapist and one part the worst interior decorator ever. She's Dr. Ruth meets every HGTV like basic bitch interior designer you've ever met. And she is meeting with all these couples that want sex rooms in their house but do they really which to be fair i will say that my annoyance with the show totally comes from my preconceived notions same because it is how to build a sex room and i guess what we both thought was it was going to be how to build a fetish room yes people but, with extreme fetishes but really what this show is people that don't fuck yeah can a sex room save my marriage <laughs> Yeah, can a sex room save my dwindling vanilla sex life with my partner that I don't want to fuck? Can you make this crawl space <laughs> below the laundry room into a fuck palace? Yeah, because I think when we first heard the premise of the show, we're like, oh my God, this is going to be sick. There's going to be one where it's like an adult baby that needs a full nursery. That's or there's going to all I wanted. There's going to be someone with like a medical fetish that wants like some weird industrial doctor's office like in their garage, like, you know, stuff like that. People that actually need sex rooms or like someone that one of those guys that has like 10,000 hyper realistic sex dolls that like need somewhere to store them. Yeah. But it's not that at all. That's what I want. I want a, a real sex doll Iron Man storage room. It's like, that's what I want. <laughs> I want them lined up like how Tony Stark had his Iron Man suits lined up. <laughs> yeah, what's in your sex room, Lauren? Um, I'm thinking it's just like a like a white restoration hardware, like dream couch, then with like a hyper real, like young Keanu Reeves. <laughs> Like sex robot from Japan that's just like sitting on the couch. Oh my God, that would be amazing. And then a little home pod so you can listen to your dipsy stories. <laughs> I love that for you. Oh my God, it comes with like pre-recorded Keanu voice. They've, they've made an AI listen to a hundred hours of Keanu Reeves films and I've just written the script. I would love that. The thing is, I don't understand like who wants a sex room aside from people with extreme fetishes because I would rather just design my bedroom and my bathroom in a way that was like conducive to sex than to have like a dedicated room. 
that's what was confusing about the show is they essentially want a bedroom that's not in their bedroom. They're like, can you make this basement a bedroom? She's like, yeah, I, I guess. And could there be a shower as well? It's like, okay, do you just want another bedroom? And you tried to get on an HGTV show and they were like, what about this show? And you're like, yeah, yeah, we want to spice things up in the bedroom. There was a couple couples where they actually did do their bedroom. Like that one, I don't know if you got to it, the chick that had three kids but had never had an orgasm. Right. I'm like, yep. I don't think that turning your bedroom into some disgusting combination of like Baz Luhrmann's Moulin Rouge and the worst Airbnb you've ever seen is going to like make you have an orgasm if you've never so much as used a vibrator. That's sort of the other problem is she's lovely, but the interior design is not great. It's disgusting. If I opened a door in my house and there was a room <laughs> like that, I would fall to my knees and weep. I've always made this point about Fifty Shades of Grey is like the other reason that that works is he's very wealthy and that's a beautifully designed room of pain. Like yeah. who wouldn't be like, all right, yeah, let's whip my ass a little bit. How bad could this be? Sure, but this shit is like, you're right. These rooms, they are so cluttered. It's not maximalism. It's like hoarding and everything is staged in the most like gross way. And also every single bed or surface that someone's supposed to fuck on is like that, like fake fur rugs from Target. Like shit that like you could only have sex here once and then it's all over. It's like a Moulin Rouge themed nail salon that also at night is a hookah bar. That's kind of the aesthetic of every room that she does. I will say there is one kinky couple let's say put kinky in quotes which is the the poly oh, yeah. seven person cuddle puddle they do need a sex room they actually need it because they have an alternative lifestyle that necessitates yes an area where all seven of them can cuddle together and also it was the one design improvement from what a couple already had which was they had a crate that like i keep my dog in oh yeah <laughs> I love how everything she just adds play at the end of. She's like, some people love cage play. It's like, not every, you don't need to put that at the end of everything. But they built- I mean, that is a term for something that exists. But it, sure, it seems a little granular. It's bondage, essentially. But they built this bench that is a cage underneath. I was like, that is the one imp design improvement I've seen on the entirety of the show. Did you get to the one that was like the lesbian couple no. that lived in the van? No. Oh, this one was bad. This one was really bad. Did they want to convert a van into a fuck van? Well, they hadn't had sex for a year. Because they live in a van? Because they live in a van with their giant dog. And it's like, girl, you need to get out of this van. Wait, so what did they do? Did she get another van that they fuck in? No, they just tricked out the van and made it slightly better. You know, put a lot of furry throw pillows. Put a some sort of sex swing, I think, that you could, like, remove. Or it's These people don't even want this shit. That's the other thing. No, that's what was nice about the poly couple is you've never seen someone more excited about a Sibian than, uh, you know, Howard Stern in the early 2000s. They're like, oh, my God, look, it's a Sibian. Yeah. See, at least they cared. See, at least what? they cared. But I really do just want the better version of this show where it's about renovating bedrooms and bathrooms and maybe the occasional room for people with like an extreme fetish. Speaking of which, I'm pretty sure your bathroom, although you didn't personally design it, oh. was definitely designed with something in mind. You're talking about the shower that has a bench in it? Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> like that was definitely like... Some guys have like pissed on each other in there for sure. I don't think he used it for sex. I think he needed to like sit down. I think he definitely used it for sex. You're crazy. Also, you think those guys aren't like <laughs> doing that shit? You're insane. Have you like ever looked at scruff? What's wrong with you? I haven't and maybe I don't want to imagine the previous owner. Well, I have. Fucking on the shower bench. <laughs> or showering on the fuck bench. Whichever you want to. <laughs> These people are crazy. Also, the people that have kids, can you imagine like going into your parents' sex room and it looks like that? There was one couple, the couple that it was their second marriage where they were like, oh, you you can use this basement. And it's like, well, I, I grew up in LA and they don't have basements for some reason. But like when I would go visit my cousins on the East Coast, basements are exclusively kid zones. What do you mean you're putting your fuck room? I know. <laughs> 
<laughs> like this is a huge space. This should be like a TV room down here with like a pool table or something. Ping pong, whatever. Also, do they not have locks on doors? See, this shit is just going to fuck up your kids. Also, imagine like if you went over to your friend's parents' house and like accidentally wandered into their bedroom that has like a stripper pole and like mirrors on the ceiling and like that kind of shit. Like you'd immediately like feel kind of unsafe in a weird way. Like you'd like straight up like call your parents and be like, I need to get out of here. Like these people are fucking perverts. This is all reminding me of one of my favorite house hunters, which was the thruple that was looking for a thruple house. And also the dynamic was great because it was a husband and wife and the wife started fucking a woman. And so now she's in the thruple. But the guy doesn't fuck the woman they brought in. And I was like, oh, okay, I see what this is. But they would go into homes, Chell, and they'd be they'd go into the bathroom. And so there was like separate bedrooms. And then the one chick would just go back and forth. I don't know. I think they all, I think he wanted to be a part of their couple play. And they were like, Haha, okay. But they would go into every home and be like, there's no three sinks in this bathroom. It's like, yeah, fucking course not. <laughs> like, House Hunters is a show of like people who are pieces of shit that don't deserve homes looking for homes and finding everything wrong with everything. But like, this was out of bounds. They're like, oh, well, we're never going to fit two beds into here. It's like, yeah, because it's a bedroom meant for a bed. <laughs> Knock down a wall. You fucking perverts. Redo, redo a bathroom. Yeah, I'm sure next season that couple will be on how to build a sex room. But what we really want, I was thinking about this, how to build a fetish room. And it's friend of the show, Carly Scaratino. Yes. With unnamed interior designer. Yeah, like some cool gay man. TBD. Yeah. Love that. Carly, that that idea is free for you to pitch. (laughs) Just find the gay guy. We'll make you a little pitch deck. Yeah. It's perfect. I'm so upset that we didn't get an adult baby. That's all I want. That's all I want is to see a really chic adult baby room. Yeah, same. What a letdown. Because that's something that you don't, you can't, okay, even if you're an adult baby 24-7, and I'm putting that in quotes, you can't have an adult baby house, but you can have a room. Yeah. Well, there's lots of fetishes that you actually can't do them without some sort of external thing. Like people that are into suspension or something. Right. Which I would have also liked to see one of them enter into the equation on this show. Or even the people that are into the suspension rope bondage and stuff. I don't know how they have time to do this shit, but if they're into it, a setup for that. That was a very accurate fetish room for a sad future Lauren. (laughs) With my Keanu Reeves sex robot doll. But I would love someone that's like, look, I'm not a serial killer, but I just want a kind of wet room like the David Fincher girl with the dragon tattoo. Oh, yeah. I just, I know you love that. I just want this... I just want that suspension thing that Daniel Craig goes up on. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Yeah, I want something that's like chic and industrial with like concrete floors and just, you know, yeah, industrial music just pumping (laughs) through the room at all times. Certainly not Enya's Sail Away. (laughs) Well, we saw some movies. We did. We saw some movies because we thought we wouldn't have anything to talk about this week. Yeah. Where do we want to start? Um... The good or the bad? Like, do you want to start on a high? Or do you want to start on low? Maybe we start on low and get high? I don't know. So not okay? Yeah. Well, what did you think of not okay? I enjoyed the film a lot more than I think you did. Right. So not okay is on... Hulu. Hulu. Okay. It's a 20th century film. It's not Fox anymore. So a 20th century film, which went on Hulu. And... What's her name? Zoe Deutsch. Zoe Deutsch plays this girl who fakes a trip to Paris because she wants to appear cool on Instagram. But then there's like a terrorist attack when she's there and everyone thinks that she's witnessed this horrible tragedy. And she rolls with it. Yeah. I think it's a good premise for sure. Did you know that that was the premise? I think I liked it because I went in just being like, oh, it's making fun of influencer dumb. I didn't even realize she's lying about what she's doing. Right. I think the thing that was missing from this film was 
there was no tension after she faked this crime. Because you would think if you were writing a movie like this, she would be on the verge of being exposed all the time throughout the whole movie. And that there's tension with that, right? The audience gets anxious, kind of like in Search Party, where they're constantly trying to cover up the crime that they committed. There's none of that in this movie. It's like she fakes this, and then the entire movie, she just goes on with her life. I think you're supposed to understand that the co-worker that she is jealous of, who then becomes jealous of her, is trying to figure out what's going on. Yeah. Which, yes, I agree with you, is maybe something that you could have had that character trying to blackmail her a lot earlier right there's literally no stakes it's just it was just weird to me also I think that I'm really sick of movies and television shows that where the central workplace is a media company that is either a parody of vice or a parody of Jezebel I can't do that anymore remember the good old days in the 2000s when they were just parodies of Vogue yeah I think the most successful at that has probably been shrill which is isn't really a a Jezebel or a vice but A good office show, I would say, about a media company. It feels like every film after Get Out feels like it needs to have social commentary in it. And I felt like I was seeing through the Matrix when I was watching this film. I was like, oh, yeah, I get it. I get it. There's this Gen Z social media satire. And then there's this subplot about gun violence. Right. Or whatever they choose for it to be about. Yeah, no one wants to just make a dumb movie anymore. A fun, dumb movie. Right. If they made Clueless today, which obviously is inspired by Emma, but it would have like a searing indictment about bullying or something. Yeah. Or class or... (laughs) We made this point once. Did we? Dion would get pulled over by the cops. Yeah, there would be something. And just because that's true to the world, it's like, I don't want to see that in movies. Yes. Not every movie should have a message. Some movies should just be dumb and escapist. It seems like in the current climate we're in with media, that seems impossible. Yeah. And it's unfortunate. Yeah. And I love when Jordan Peele does it, but this feels like a mandate from a studio. No, I'm sure you're right. In the words of Anthony, hates it. <laughs> but see, to me, this, fil- this film feels more at home in the culture of like 2016 or 2017, which I believe is around when Ingrid Goes West came out. Right. That was the genius of Ingrid Goes West. And that is kind of the problem with movies as a medium is it takes this many years to develop it, to write it, to sell it, to develop it, to distribute it. For even studios to think that this is a good idea to start making movies like that. That's why most movies don't feel new or fresh. Yeah. Unless they're an indie film. That was what was astonishing about Ingrid Goes West is it was almost, it was like, A second before the moment. Yeah, that's definitely the superior film in this genre. Also, I feel like the plot line about the the chick that was basically like an influencer version of um, Emma Gonzalez felt like it was out of a different time period. But that's my point about movies with a message. It's like, yeah, you can have your, you know, uh, millennial pink office, but this movie needs to, to be about real things. It's about gun violence, kind of. I mean, it's about, it's about narcissism. It's about not being okay. That I mean, the most legit thing about the film is her fake hashtag. Yeah, which actually that is impressive. That it was so legit. That it's like a believable. You know, the end of the film is the character doesn't get a redemption arc, but that character would. She would chill out for five years, write a memoir, and then come back. Yeah. But that was the message. It's like, we're not going to give her this arc. Because as a film, we're siding with the Emma Gonzalez character, which is correct, but... Right, but she does become a better person than than who she was at the start of the film. Right. Well, isn't that just kind of what has to happen throughout the course of a film? I mean, does What's-Her-Name and Gone Girl become a better person? That's true, but Gone Girl subverted so many of our expectations. Yeah, I guess... This does not do that. This is exactly as you would expect it to be. Yeah, this is exactly what I think a studio would make. I will say that between this and Bodies, 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 which we're going to talk about in a second, for the first time I'm like, oh, okay, the youth aesthetic is firmly enmeshed in films now, but at the very least, it's youngish people writing and directing these films. Okay, let's talk about Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. This An actually good movie. Yeah, the superior version of this film. Although, when I was looking at the reviews, 
we might be in the minority, but this is definitely, if you love this podcast, you will love Bodies, 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 because it's definitely our frequency, this movie. For sure. It also falls within a genre of horror movies that are about teenagers that are partying, which is generally a kind of movie that I like. I think after Scream, there were so many films where it's like, that's a new Scream, that's a new Scream, that's a new Scream. This, to me, feels like the new Scream in the sense that it is deconstructing slasher films, commenting on current culture, a ton of pop culture references. Feels current. Actually feels current. Uh, but is making fun of the slasher genre is almost an anti-slasher slasher film, but is an authentically good slasher film. Well, it's arguably not even a slasher film. It's a comedy. Yes. A very rare comedy horror film. Yeah. Or, I mean, there are plenty of comedy horror films, but let's be honest, a good comedy horror film. Yeah, it kind of had everything. It has, like, Pete Davidson, lesbians, a secluded mansion. Lee Pace looking very attractive. I was really into Rachel Senat, who was so good in the role of the dumb as a bag of rocks podcaster. Oh, man. I looked at you when... (laughs) She's a line. I think it's in the trailer where she's like, podcasting's hard, okay? (laughs) Yeah, I felt a little triggered by that. This is a a film, pun intended, that's all killer, no filler. I felt like every scene needed to be there. Yeah. You know, you don't really have, except for Maria Baklava, who plays Borat's daughter in that second Borat film. That's that's who she is. That's who she is. Who does a kind of monologue about her past, but... It really comes out in dialogue throughout the film of what is the central tension between all of these characters? What happened before this film started? And it comes out in a very organic way. Yeah. It's really hard to do films about characters who are terrible people and make you care and make it funny. And this is one of them. Yeah, I did care about all of them. I didn't want any of them to get murdered. Spoiler alert, people get murdered. (laughs) Also, it is a very wet movie. The premise of the film, which I didn't realize, another film that I just was like, I know I'm going to love this film, I'm just going to go, is a group of friends get together for a weekend, but it is because they're having a hurricane party because a hurricane is coming through wherever this film is supposed to take place. I just assumed it was in like upstate New York or Connecticut or... Or Georgia, where they probably filmed it for tax credits, but yeah. Which you need that to necessitate a lot of the plot conveniences that you, that are just required in horror films. Yeah, Power's out, no one has reception because the Wi-Fi went out. Right, but yeah, so wet. So see that. Yeah, it was it was only in six theaters this past Friday, but it's going to have a wider release. What is easier to watch is they, them. But did you know that it's actually pronounced they slash them? Which makes more sense. Uh, I think they should have just spelled out the slash. They you know? slash. Them. They slash them makes sense for a horror movie at a gay conversion camp. Right. Well, what did you think? Because you know I liked it. And I had heard that you liked it before I had started watching it. Look, I feel we need B-movies. Yes. There's nothing wrong with B-movies. Look, it's not the best script. Which is insane because the screenwriter who wrote this wrote The Aviator, wrote Skyfall. He's the creator of Penny Dreadful. Okay, he wrote Alien Covenant. But all things I don't like, actually. He is a very legit screenwriter who's written very good, complicated scripts. And there's a lot of, as I just mentioned with Bodies, 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 a lot of conveniences that you have to go with that I'm like, eh. Well, also, you can figure out who the killer is from a mile away. Or sure. at least I did. But I still enjoyed it. Although I did think that the title, They Slash Them, would be more of a pun. Like, sure, it's a it's set in a queer conversion therapy camp, but there's like multiple murderers, kind of like us. Right. But there isn't. There's just one. And also, who you think it is, isn't. Well, who did you think it was? I mean, I thought I thought the reversal... I, I kept writing the film as I was watching it. I thought I was like, oh, that would be cool if it was Kevin Bacon. Right. But it's not. No, it's not a perfect movie, but I think we need some new terminology to describe films like this, which are 
like a great movie, a good movie succeeds on multiple fronts, right? The script is good. The acting is good. Everything comes together. This movie does not succeed on all of those fronts, but I still enjoyed watching it. It was cozy, you know? Plus, I just love conversion therapy shit. <laughs> I will say that was the first thing I didn't quite understand, and that, and then I sort of got it, is that he's lulling, lulling them into a false sense of security. Uh, when he's like, hey, man, this isn't a conversion camp. I'm like, what? Well, that was the twist, is that it's kind of a woke conversion therapy camp, and then, which was a fun place to start, I think. And then progressively just gets weirder and weirder and weirder. Yeah. I also really like the star of this film, Theo Germain, who was also in The Politician. They played... Ben Platt's chief of staff and they're also in work in progress which is a great show that like if you liked both Hannah Gadsby's Nanette and Curb Your Enthusiasm that's a show that you should be watching but they are amazing on that also and I'm glad to see them get roles I think films like this should exist I feel like there should be a level of movies I mean this is how the Hollywood system used to work going back in the 40s and 50s where the term a B-movie comes from, it's not its not what it means now, but there were A-directors that would direct, you know, Casablanca and Wizard of Oz and such. And then you had B-directors that were directing smaller films who were working their way up to being A-directors. We now use it as a kind of terminology for quality, but right. I do feel like, especially in the era of streaming, to make smaller movies and allow people to experiment and do weird things, I think that's important. For sure. Also, were you shook by that incredibly androgynous guy? Oh. He's he him and he's ripped, but he looks like an even skinnier version of Jennifer Connolly in the face. He looks like Jennifer Connolly in Requiem for a Dream. Like it is a fucking look. Okay, that that twist I did enjoy, which we, <laughs> Yeah. We won't get into. They, they, were- they slash them has its moments. Did you like the pink sing-along? Okay. No, that to me, okay, there were parts of it where it felt like the Brian Murphyization of media. Cause, yeah. Cause that part felt like glee. It, it, did, it did, did feel like glee. It did feel like I could see the pitch meeting where they're like, you know how like it's American Horror Story, but then there's like a musical sequence. Well, no one can do that. Well, Ryan Murphy does it. And it's like, well, yeah, in separate shows. Yeah. It was funny. Tat was like, I was watching it with Tat and she's like, God, like conversion therapy just looks so fun in movies because <laughs> and it does seem like a crazy fucking idea to just round up all of these random gay kids from all of these different areas and then like put them together in a summer camp setting. It's like, surely they'd all just fuck. Yeah. I mean, I could have done with a little more of those hijinks. I did enjoy that. They're also upfront of like, oh, I'm just trying to get shit from my parents. Yeah. Like, I don't believe in any of this. Do any of them even want to be there? The, like, straight jock guy, let's say. Right. He's so hot. (laughs) Really? Didn't you think? He's a conventionally handsome guy, sure. He's very conventionally handsome. You know, he's no Keanu Reeves sex robot, so. (laughs) I just love conversion therapy shit. Like, I love, obviously, but I'm a cheerleader being the best and most iconic. I love that episode of South Park where... Butters goes to conversion therapy, which is also amazing. And I thought that the miseducation of Cameron Post was a good movie with, um, was it Chloe Grace Moretz? Moretz? Yeah. That was a good one. I did see um, Boy Erased, which was definitely the most disturbing one, especially because it was based on a true story. Although my biggest takeaway from that is that I watched an entire film that I didn't know that Russell Crowe was in. <laughs> Yeah, he looks different now. That was crazy. And sending a slasher film at a gay conversion camp is an ingenious idea. Great idea. Having Kevin Bacon as the charismatic, formerly gay? We never get his backstory, but I guess it's implied. Yeah. Certainly his underling is someone that went through the camp and came out better. Yeah. We watch all of these movies, one, because they came out recently, but two, they all are kind of connected. It's this very, like, woke Gen Z parody of woke Gen Z slasher. Yeah. All right. Well, 
I'm not going to see you for a hot minute. I mean, I'm truly only gone 10 days. All right, well, have fun. I hope your luggage doesn't get lost. Thank you. I hope so either. Look, you'll get it back. Eventually. Yeah. Tack out her bag back? Yeah. It took like nine days, but they always come back. But you're prepared. You got your air tags and shit. Just like lovers and lovers and luggage. I couldn't help but wonder, are, is luggage like lovers? They always come back? Do lovers always come back? I think they usually just like disappear into the abyss. How Miranda of you. Anyway, that is a little tease to say that next week's episode is a Sex and the City rewatch where we rewatch Sex in the Country. Yes. So see you guys then. All right, guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.